From Alaska Teen Media Institute, this is Podcast in Place, Youth Stories from Quarantine, a series about youth in Alaska during the COVID-19 pandemic. We're bringing you stories, interviews, and audio diaries from teenagers and young adults stuck at home with nothing better to do. I'm Atme producer Danielle Duclos, recording this on my iPhone in my apartment in Columbia, Missouri, since the Atme studio is closed for the time being. In past episodes, we've talked with healthcare workers, teachers, and business owners about COVID-19, but we've yet to speak with those who keep us informed and help explain what's happening throughout the state. Alaska's journalists have been reporting nonstop throughout the pandemic, contextualizing case numbers and sharing Alaskans' personal experiences with the virus. In this episode, we hear from Michelle Tirio boots and Zaz Hollander, reporters at the Anchorage Daily News who focus on Alaskan health coverage. They spoke with ATME senior producer Quinn White about covering COVID-19 in Alaska how it's changed the way they do journalism, and the differences between how people throughout the state have reacted to the pandemic. They spoke over Zoom on January 13th, 2021. So since you began covering the pandemic, what are some of the trends and changes you've seen? So we could start with Zaz. Wow, that is a really good question. Um, the first thing that comes to mind is um, the way the public reacts reacted um, to the restrictions that started in March, right? When we really started seeing cases here in Alaska. And at first we didn't know what would happen. Um, you know, we were behind in terms of when the first cases were starting, when hospitalizations were starting to take off. So we could see what was happening like in New York City, which was terrible, you know, with portable, portable morgue trucks parked in the streets. and. Uh, hospitals overrun and we didn't know if that would happen here and I, I think a lot of people thought it, it would in part because we just don't have the hospitals um, and our healthcare system is just so crazy with the whole the giant state the hub and spoke healthcare system uh, a lot of you know hundreds of small villages um, most of them off the road system and so people uh, really reacted strongly to restrictions to stay in to mask up um, and then we kind of skated for a while. We, we didn't really see the kind of surges um, that we were seeing in the lower 48. And uh, I think that helped people get a little bit complacent. Um, and so by May, our, our case counts were pretty low. And then June and July came and they went way up, um, partly because of the summer tourism and more importantly, the seafood industry. We had a lot of cases in the seafood industry. Uh, so our numbers changed, our hospitalizations went up. Um, and we started seeing how much more severe it was. But by then, I, the tolerance for some of the restrictions, masking, you know, hunkering down on your own, were people were just getting sick of it. And coupled with the Alaskan spirit of independence, um, really, I think in Anchorage is a little bit different. But I know up here in Matsu, it has not come back. Um, you know, I, I go out quite a bit. Well, I don't actually go out quite a bit. When I do go out, um, I don't see a lot of masking outside of the big box stores where people are generally required to mask up. So I think that would be the first trend that, that I've seen. I feel like I've been talking long enough on that. I'm curious what, what Michelle has to say. Yeah, the thing that jumped to my mind was just polarization. And I think in on both 
you know, I think early in the pandemic, there was that sense of cohesiveness and that kind of like, let's do this together. And then as the pandemic has worn on, it's become very clear that different people are experiencing it in really different ways. Um, sometimes, you know, having to do with, are, are you a essential worker that's still having to go to work? Are you someone who's able to stay home? What's your childcare situation like? What's your kid's school situation like? And the thing that strikes me this far into it is just how different, you know, there are people who have con who contact us who are really living their lives basically as as normal as they can be under the current circumstances, almost to like a sh degree that kind of shocks me. And then there are people who are, you know, I got we got an email from somebody the other day from like a 70 something year old woman who was like, I haven't you know, I, I have been isolated this entire time. I only order groceries. I, I'm still, you know, sticking at home as much as possible. And, um, and so just that divergence in experiences has been really interesting to see. And sometimes it falls on kind of down cultural or political lines. And sometimes it's just how people are kind of adapting and dealing with, with it. So I would say polarization and experience, um, I think I've done, I've covered more of like the kind of outside the hard news medical part, just kind of like how people are living um, side of the pandemic. And I guess a couple areas are really interesting to me, just interactions with creative ways that people have figured out to interact with their friends and family members um, and creative ways people have figured out to school their kids. Um, so I, those are kind of the more, those are interesting and hopeful stories to me, I guess, the way people, the ways people have figured out how to live through an Alaska winter in a pandemic without just going totally crazy. So how has um, covering COVID changed how you take precautions um, with your journalism? So things like face-to-face -face interviews and traditional ways of reporting. Um, how has that changed? And we can go ahead and start with Michelle. I, I think certainly there's just way more talking on the phone um, than normal. <laughs> there's no traveling, which is really a huge bummer because some of the best stories we do are stories where we're able to actually, you know, I don't think we've sent a reporter off the road system since March. Is that right, Zaz? Yeah, I mean, I guess, well, Haynes is the only place I can think of because of the okay. landslide. Oh, right, right. Okay. So, so it's, you know, we're doing almost most everything um, by phone, but I still, if at all given the opportunity, I will meet with someone in their driveway outside their house. <laughs> I did one story where I went with to this, uh, um, elderly care home and, you know, followed this family as they were visiting their 90 year old dad through the window. Um, and that's, that was like one of my favorite stories because I got to talk to people in person <laughs> and I miss doing that so much because that's what I think most people get into journalism to do. Another thing is we're relying a lot more on people sharing their own kind of um, documents, photos, you know, we always rely on that, but Never, I, I find myself asking a lot more often, hey, can you send me a photo of yourself, your life, because it's less likely that we can go and be there. Um, so certainly I haven't been inside somebody's house 
for a long time to interview them, which is no, normally something I would be doing very, very regularly. Yeah, that's absolutely. It's been, um, you know, Michelle knows this, um, and you guys probably know it too. Like the best journalism is, um, it's very detail oriented, and you're you're there. You know, you you go to where things are happening. Um, but I think we have done a really good job of of working a lot by phone. Um, you learn to ask different questions. Um, there has been, I think, one of the upsides is there are more regular press conferences where you have access to officials. Um, that otherwise you would have to go through, you know, a spokesperson, et cetera. Those press conferences aren't, they're not always that informative. Um, unfortunately, you don't, and, and Michelle's participated in some of those too, that we ask, we think we have these great questions and um, the, the state officials are working really hard, especially, you know, the health department officials, you know, Dr. Zink is sort of the face of COVID response and she is constantly on Zoom and she participates in a lot of these calls she's very she's very bright um, but i think they're all in in difficult positions that it, it, it's hard for them to be very direct with reporters especially in this public forum um i haven't been in anybody's house since the pandemic started um, i have tried to you know report in parking lots um, especially if people are masked uh you know i remember doing a story in i think it was april or may about masking because it was so different in that zoo compared to anchorage so I was interviewing people with mixed levels of masking um, mm -hmm. about why they weren't that the guy playing the harmonica in the Palmer post office without a mask on. Um, interviewing him, I was standing pretty far back. Um, droplets, so that, that's all I can think is droplets. <laughs> <laughs> How far are those droplets going? Yeah, are yelling at me? <laughs> um, you know, and I haven't, I think there is some resistance to talking to reporters uh, because this um, pandemic has gotten so politicized. But at the paper, especially, I mean, we're working really hard to increase our kind of community uh, connection and advocacy um, and interconnectedness. And so we have a few different platforms where we ask readers, you know, are you dealing with this? Have you had a loved one die with COVID, et cetera? And we get way more, I think, reader interaction that way than we were getting in the past. And a lot of those stories or emails either end up in stories or and people that can feed into a future story or just these are connections that we wouldn't make normally if we were kind of doing conventional journalism. Um, so that's been that's been a bonus. But yeah, it's, it's pretty strange. I mean, I used to cover court cases, Michelle, too, and you can't go to court. You can't physically go to court and cover court cases anymore. So it just you have to get creative having uh, cell numbers. Um, and I guess maybe for you guys, this isn't a thing, but you know, I mean, literally, <laughs> this is embarrassing, but when I started as a reporter, we didn't use the internet. <laughs> so I was, I mean, we got fax press releases. Um, and so having phone numbers, it was always landlines. And so now like having somebody's landline is not helpful because they're not at work. And so having access to, to like the, the more personal level of people or email, obviously, or, or all kinds of social connections on social media, um, has become increasingly important because people don't show up at the office for the, for the most part. Um, how has covering such a difficult topic affected you personally? Do you ever feel like there's times where you put yourself in unsafe COVID situations or has this taken um, like some kind of emotional toll on you? And we can go ahead and start with Zaz. Um, yes, yes, definitely in, in answer to the second question. Uh, in terms of putting myself in danger, I don't think any more than a journalist does normally. I mean, I've covered some evolving crime scenes that were probably more dangerous. Um, 
So, and, and I, you know, we all try to be very careful um, to make sure, you know, of what we're getting into um, and all that. Um, emotionally, for sure. And again, I don't think it's that different from reporters who deal with trauma a lot, um, even if it's somebody else's trauma. Um, but yeah, I, I don't, like, I, I have sleep issues. I wake up in the middle of the night thinking about a story I wrote or should be writing. Um, and um, just in general, like, there's this constant press. I mean, this is a life and death issue and the stories we select are really important. And I, I keep, you know, gosh, there's got to be other stories I should be working on or suggesting we're working on. It's just that kind of constant churn is definitely, um, it takes a toll. Um, but it also feels really important in a way that sometimes when you're working on stories that are, you know, before the pandemic, you know, when I covered the Matsuburo assembly, I wasn't always sure that the stories I was writing would be read, would, you know, that I was framing them the right way. And and these stories we know are they're really important, but yeah, there. I mean, there's there's definitely um, a, a new level of emotional toll, and because we're also, I mean, both of us have interviewed people who either have become very sick, or um, their family members have died with COVID. Um, you know, I have yeah. colleagues who have have had similar experiences. I mean, the the virus is ex affecting all of us in personal ways, um, as well as in professional ways. So that's that's a whole new level that most of us haven't experienced. I kind of thought that like at a certain point I had kind of like absorbed all of the fear and worry and trauma uh, possible but by read secondhand by reading so many stories about COVID and interviewing people but actually it really hit home for me and actually changed my plans and behaviors very dramatically when one of our former colleagues died of COVID. She was 73 years old and her daughter wrote a really heartbreaking piece about it. And then I wrote her obituary. And because of that story, I had planned to visit my parents in Washington with my family. And I canceled my trip because I just felt like it just really shook me. So that was like a really strange kind of crossing of um, personal and professional because I knew Rosemary and she was a friend but also I was you know writing her news obituary um, because she was an important person in the community um, and then stories like the one about Libby the teacher who has these kind of unclear long-term neurological effects um, those <laughs> those have definitely given me um, I think I've, I've generally been pretty responsible and careful in the pandemic but stories like that do, do really give you pause and they really make you reflect on your own risks and your loved ones risks for sure yeah so my next question is for Michelle so how has the pandemic impacted your ability to report on crime and courts Oh, dramatic. Very, very much. Um, and I think that this is something we haven't done a good enough job communicating to the public just how affected this is. I mean, first thing, there are no trials. You know, there have been no trials happening, except for I think one um, since March. And there's also really, really limited access to the to the public records that we would normally, you know, routinely seek. So you can't just show up down at the courthouse, waltz in, ask for a big fat court file full of important information, go sit with it for an hour taking pictures with your phone. Um, now it's this whole process where you have to, I think, call 10 days in advance to make an appointment. The appointment's only 15 minutes long, which is really not enough time. Um, and there are some ways that the state has been working around that. Like sometimes if we ask for a 
charging document in a criminal case, they'll just email it to us. But it really has limited our physical access to those um, to those hearings. Um, and then also, you know, so many hearings, um, court hearings are happening telephonically, virtually, that I attended one of those virtually <laughs> recently, and it was just, um, it was hard and confusing. And I can't imagine the people who are actually going through the system, um, what it's like for them. Also, any access that we previously had to prisons is completely cut off um, in a really a really challenging way that I have not figured out a good workaround for. I mean, we've obviously had a massive COVID outbreak in our prisons. 40% of Alaska prisoners have contracted COVID. Um, and I have been trying to get, you know, firsthand accounts from prisoners. And it's really, really difficult because there's even they're just their phone time is limited. A lot of them are stuck in their cells because they're essentially on lockdown because of COVID risk. And there's and even their attorneys can't get a hold of them. So that's been a disturbing and um, a really significant way that our access to people involved in the criminal justice system has been curtailed. And I think that that needs to change. Absolutely. So my next question is for Zaz. Um, so as young reporters, we are really interested in knowing how you prepare for interviews. How are they conducted? And can you take us kind of from step A to when um, you get to print? Um, that's a really good question. And I, boy, I don't know that this process has changed that much, you know, over the years and years that I've been a reporter. Um, so I'm, I, I can give an example of like today, I'm working on a story about the different pace of COVID vaccine between the people getting the vaccine through the state and, and Indian Health Service beneficiaries getting it through tribal health organizations, um, which is a tricky story to write. And so I'm trying to find people who are getting vaccinations who aren't um, the kind of people who would be getting them through the state. So it's mostly younger people, you know, like me, <laughs> um, or you know, even younger. Are Some are even at 16 and up in some of the villages in the YK are starting to get vaccinated, which is amazing. And, um, and that's because there's a different uh, distribution system for um, tribal health beneficiaries. And so I'm talking to a guy who just got vaccinated, I think it was today through South Central Foundation. Um, and I don't know him personally, a coworker kind of hooked me up with him. So I, um, I did some kind of cursory research just to make sure I sort of know who he is and, and what, you know, what his background is so I don't ask dumb questions to start out with. Um, I like to get sort of a basic feeling for who it is I'm interviewing. And obviously I don't know until I talk to them and I don't wanna go in with preconceptions, um, but I wanna inform myself. So I ask questions that pertain to them. Um, you know, interviewing Dave is um, gonna be a different process than interviewing Dr. Zink, let's say, and that, that's gonna take more preparation um, but I'm kind of looking forward to this conversation because I, it, it's sort of an open-ended one um, where I don't have a whole bunch of questions that I'm preparing. I'm mostly really curious for what his experience was, um, you know, when he got vaccinated, what that felt like, um, what all those details that we can't get because we aren't there. Um, I'm going to try to get him to provide some of that. He seems like a really funny guy. He has a funny Twitter handle. <laughs> um, so I'm assuming he'll be an interesting person to talk to. Um, and, and then I may also try to talk with him about the, the thing that's making this story really sensitive. Um, and that is, 
and this is a, a sort of a honestly a racial slash political divide that there are. We just got an email today from a reader who is outraged um, that Alaska Native people are on a different schedule to get vaccinated from other people in the state. Um, and so I'm still not sure how I'm going to write the story, to be honest with you. I'm going to lean pretty heavily on the editor of the paper who's been for decades been covering, um, you know, issues in rural Alaska. Um, and so in talking with, with Dave, I'm going to try to tease out his feelings about that. You know, are you hearing from friends who aren't, you know, who aren't native, who are like, what are you getting the shot for? And, um, I mean, that might be a way to address those issues, um, in a kind of a sensitive way. Um, cause I, you know, I can't speak to that, but, but he can. Um, so, you know, that in terms of preparing for an interview, I guess that's, that's one way. And then just very briefly, the opposite would be preparing for one of these um, statewide press conferences that the governor hosts. And that is um, sometimes can take a few hours just to prepare one question that's specific enough that you might get a good answer, just to try to think of like, what, what's the most important thing we need to know from, from this guy, from our governor um, and from his top health officials. So that's a whole different process that involves more research, more thinking, consulting with other people on staff about you know, what they wanna know and all that all that kind of stuff. Michelle, can you tell me why it's important for people in our community to read um, these kinds of stories and what you hope the impact of your stories are? I think the, one of the best things that journalism can do first is to inform, right? To let people know information they need to know, but also to introduce people to people they might not otherwise know, people whose stories they might not otherwise hear. And I, I kind of always operated on the belief that you can never, you can't really hate someone whose story you know. Um, the more you know about a person, the more likely you are to have empathy for them, to uh, have understanding of their situation, um, or at least to think deeply and consider it. And so that's, that's like generally my main goal with stories. Um, and that's, why I think people I think people should read um, stories about the coronavirus and the people affected by it, by it. Um, first to be informed to know the just basic information that people need to be aware of um, to live as responsible citizens in our in our society, but also to kind of lift the veil on um, people whose lives are maybe not like theirs, but whose experiences have. Um, validity and, and deserve to be heard and known. So in general, how do you find your stories and how do you decide which story to pursue? Um, and we can go ahead and start with Zaz. That is, um, that's a hard question to answer because it's just, there's such a broad range. Um, the deciding part is, is almost harder, but um, so in terms of finding stories, they come in all different ways. Um, some of them are fairly obvious. Um, they're the kind of questions that you ask yourself um, while something is, I mean, we're all experiencing COVID. And so in that sense, it's kind of a known quantity and, you know, your friends talk about it, your neighbors talk about it. And, and, and you know, if you're lucky, you could engage with them somehow. Um, and so, you know, just watching, you know, news, national news, how does whatever is happening with COVID relate to what's happening in Alaska? Um, you know, how, how am I gonna get a vaccination? How can I get tested? Um, and, and beyond that, sort of the first person, it's we get so many um, emails now, and not just because we're asking for them, but because people have so many questions, um, and especially right now with the vaccine rollout. Um, I can't tell you, it's kind of heartbreaking, the number of emails 
we've gotten and I've gotten personally from seniors. And it's just one question, like, how do I sign up? Where do I sign up? How can I get one? Um, you know, as, as I think you guys probably all know, there have been some pretty significant issues and issues with um, the rollout for the seniors. And so it's just been super confusing for them. I mean, some of them are really computer savvy and got out ahead of when they were supposed to make appointments. And some of them aren't computer savvy and just can't navigate the state system. Um, and the phone number, there's one phone number for people to call. Anyway, I'm getting off on a tangent, but there are plenty of stories out there. Um, we hear about it from you know, occasionally an editor, but I mean, only the editor of the paper, David Hewland, is, is great at big picture. And so, you know, it's easy. I write at least a story a day on average. And so it's really easy to get sucked into that breaking news daily. Like what's the story of the moment? And he's good at saying like, what's, what are we seeing in terms of trends here? Back up a little, what are the, the bigger stories we should be working on? I, I think I'll, 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 I'll stop there. But in terms of deciding what to write, that's the hardest part. I mean, that's, the easy stories to write are, are the are the ones that are, um, boy, I don't know, like a, a quick feature on, on like on, if I could just focus on one person getting a shot, that would be wonderful. The harder stories are those involving a lot of investigation that you know you need to do, but it's just, it's hard, always, always hard finding time to do those stories. Um, picking which stories are important really comes down to knowing, trying to know what readers, who your readers are and what they need to know. And I think what they need to know is is knowledge is power. You know what what is happening? What's the truth of the situation? And what do you need to know to influence um, your world, you know, the, your politicians, you know, decisions that affect your friends and your family? But that's not easy. I think Zaz really said that pretty well. There's not that much that I would add to that, except for I think a lot of um, a lot of our story ideas come from also conversations with each other. Like, hey, are you hearing people saying this over and over again? Or are you getting these same questions? And it's like, well, that's a story. That's obviously a story if, if this is something that's coming up and coming up. Um, I think some stories, I think one thing I would caution is that these days it seems it's really easy to equate like what people are talking about on Twitter or social media, which is of course our own little groomed social media feed with what our readers are thinking about and talking about. And I think that's really dangerous because it doesn't represent, um, it's not broadly representative necessarily of your readers and their cares and interests. So I sometimes get stories from things I see being talked about or happening on social media, but I, I would say in general, not, that's not the main way. Um, there's no better way to get story ideas than talking to strangers. That's something I've learned over and over again. And, and it's harder right now to talk to strangers than normal, but um, just out in the course of reporting and living life, conversations with people I don't know who are not in my circle always yield the most interesting story ideas. I would, I would second that 125%. And that's something our, our editor, David Hewlin, says all the time is talking talking to strangers <laughs> go talk to strangers that's the best way to learn about this place so we'll be right back this episode was produced as part of atme's youth health reporters cohort where youth producers get to speak with professional journalists who cover public health and safety in alaska and if you're interested in digging into Alaskan health issues, apply to become a youth health reporter at ATME. 
We're looking for youth between the ages of 13 and 21 to produce their own news feature pieces on health topics of their choice with the help and mentorship of ATME staff and the Alaska Press Corps. For more information and to apply, visit our website at alaskateenmedia.org. Now, back to Quinn's interview with Michelle Thirio-Boots and Zaz Hollander. How do you cover something like COVID when there's so much disinformation that's being circulated? And we can go ahead and start with Michelle. I mean, I think that our role as, um, our role in the kind of science of verification becomes extremely important right now. Probably never been more important. <laughs> so, so first you're considering the source. Where is this information coming from? Is this information coming from somebody's aunt's Facebook feed? Is it coming from a scientist who works for the state of Alaska? Um, and you know, knowing where it's coming from, what questions can we ask to um, further verify that this information is good and true and legit and worth? You know, so so that's probably I would say source analysis. You know, what is where's the information coming from? What do we know about that source? What questions can we ask to verify that it is true and correct? And um, and what should we do with it, knowing? knowing all that. Um, I mean, and this like drives me crazy because my beloved dear mother is always saying to me, well, you know, I don't think I'm, I don't think I can have COVID because of my blood type or I, you know, she has these theories or I'm afraid of the vaccine because of this. And I say, well, where did you read that? And she says, well, it was on the news. And I said, well, what, what, you know, where on the news? And she says, well, it was on Facebook. And, and so there's just this, it's really important to differentiate the validity of different sources. Yeah, for sure. Facebook is our frenemy. Um, it can be really frustrating um, to see the, uh, the misinformation that's out there. And some of it is blatantly, um, wrong. Uh, you know, none of us, well, I'll just speak for myself. I'm not an expert. Uh, I'm not a COVID expert. I interview people who are, um, but even I sometimes can suss out, uh, there, there's one thread that goes around about how people without symptoms um, don't transmit COVID-19. And it's the opposite. I mean, up to half the cases we're seeing now are transmitted by people without symptoms. So um, what we try to do is we have a few different um, avenues for, for addressing misinformation. Um, Michelle's exactly right in terms of sourcing, you know, knowing where the information is coming from. Um, but when we know the information isn't true, um, as in that example, we try to correct it um, by citing experts. We have a, it was a weekly feature, um, now it's an occasional feature. It's just a question and answer, a Q&A on COVID. And that's mostly where we address misinformation, um, questions from readers that keep coming up. Um, and, and I think if you have a lot of unanswered questions, that's sometimes when misinformation can kind of filter in to your worldview. Um, and so we try to give answers to those questions. Um, we have talked about just writing, you know, throughout the pandemic, um, we talk about like, is now the time to write that story where we address all the misinformation? Um, and we haven't quite gotten to that point. It's kind of a sticky story to write. Um, just because there are people who feel very strongly. Uh, and because as Michelle said, this has become a really politicized issue that not always, but often the misinformation is a kind of a politically driven um, mm -hmm. factor. And so that's, 
uh, that's a difficult topic to address. But yeah, I mean, the best thing we can do is, you know, I'll get emails from people um, and I'll try to engage unless they're being really angry and confrontational or, or cussing at us, which they also do. We get some pretty profane emails, um, but that's not the majority at all. And so if I'm dealing with someone who has misinformation, is asking me questions and seems like they want to relate, um, I'll answer. And a lot of the times they'll answer back and say, boy, I didn't expect you to reply. And then we'll have a conversation. And, and those are few and far between, but I feel like those go a long way. So something that Michelle said that kind of stuck out to me was that um, even like our moms sometimes <laughs> fall for, you know, this um, Facebook misinformation. So my question is, how do you talk to your family members about misinformation and kind of guide them in the right direction? I think they, I think there's important not to, not necessarily to judge our family members, um, but just to lovingly say, hey, um, I don't think that's true. And here's why. And here are some, here are some places I recommend that I think you could get some, some reliable information because I love you and I care about you and I want you to be okay. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, um, that, that's all true. And I find it to be a good training, um, albeit a little bit frustrating. My, my dad is, um, very, very smart guy, um, is, um, tends to get a lot of his information from, um, right-leaning news sites that are not legitimate news sites. And he knows that, <laughs> um, but they, he also, you know, he, he agrees with their politics. And so, you know, he also gets sort of this no filter, um, inundation sometimes of, of, of not great information. And um, when I spend time with them, um, if I am, um, if I'm being honest with myself and, and, and not getting frustrated, um, we can have some pretty productive conversations because I really have to know my stuff, right? I, I can't come at him with emotion. I can't just blanket deny dad that you know that news site is not a credible news site. Why are you believing that? But, but, um, it, that those, if, if we, if we actually get into it and, um, I don't let the family dynamic get to me, um, cause it, we always have our own, you know, that there's the, the personal conversations you have with your family members that, um, that reflect years and years of conversations you've had. Uh, it can be really good, um, training for being even handed and, and knowing what you're talking about and making good arguments, um, for science and what we know to be true about COVID. So can you tell me, um, if your writing style has changed since you've started covering such a polarized issue, um, and mm -hmm. we can go ahead and start with Zaz. Hmm. Um, I don't think it has. I have, I have not thought about that, to be honest with you, Quinn. That's a really good question. Um, I've covered kind of polarized issues for a long time. I started out covering um, logging, commercial fishing in Oregon, covering environmental issues, uh, mining in North Idaho um, that were really charged. Um, and I guess if there's one thing that I've learned over time and with COVID is that there's a place where we're all in it together, um, that it's not two sides, um, especially with an issue as politicized as, as COVID. Um, it's the he said, she said mode of reporting. It doesn't really work anymore, um, I mean, unless it has to. Um, and so I guess I'm really trying not to write, you know, but then so-and-so said this. Um, 
but write a story that boy reflects a reality that just is and and you kind of go from there if that makes sense mm -hmm. um that doesn't always happen uh and i'm i'm kind of rarely successful but i guess that would be the goal and that is that is a lesson from, from covid i haven't thought of it that way before really interesting yeah i don't i don't know that my again i haven't done as much of the writing about sort of the hard news facts of covid i've done much more of what would be i think described as feature stories about like What's it like in Whittier, Alaska with, with a pandemic where everybody lives in the same building? And um, what's it like to be this person and this person? Um, so I don't I don't think so. I am very aware though of some pandemic cliches, like COVID writing cliches. And one of them is the headline that I see everywhere all the time that's like, it's set up like this was gonna happen. Then came the pandemic, then came COVID. And that's like a whole sort of frame for a story that I see all the time. And it's often an interesting story, but I'm just tired of it. <laughs> I've probably written a few of those myself. You know, I'm just so tired of the like, this person was going to whatever, then came COVID because it's also universal. Like everyone has had their plans dashed by COVID in some way, right? So, um, so that's when there's other COVID writing cliches that I'll probably think of after this, um, after this, but yeah, I would agree with Zaz, like, you know, there are certain basic facts of reality that, that I think we have to acknowledge, which is first that the pandemic exists and it's real, <laughs> um, COVID can kill you. And, uh, those, those as like kind of a starting block for reality, um, in news stories are, you know, you just have to write that in and. I think that's important. Um, is there a difference in how you report on COVID in Anchorage um, versus the Matsu? And um, how does the general Matsu population regard ADN? Um, is there a difference? Boy, I'd like to say no. Um, I'd like to say that the way we report doesn't matter who we're reporting for, or who we're reporting on. Um, but there probably is a subconscious difference just because, I mean, I lived in Anchorage when I first moved to Alaska, so I haven't lived in Matsu the whole time. Um, and I'm not from Alaska originally. I grew up in kind of rural New Jersey um, and then moved west um, when I went to Oregon. Um, and so I don't pretend to know Alaska, you know, even after 20 years here, right? Um, so, I mean, there is a difference Partly the difference for COVID anyway, is that there are such different restrictions in Anchorage and in Matsu. I mean, there are really none here um, compared to Anchorage anyway, um, uh, in terms of you know masking requirements and, and all that. Um, I think because I report in Matsu and I live in Matsu, my kind of field of um, references might be a little bit different than if I were living only in Anchorage, um, just because the people I run into, um, you know, um, before the pandemic, um, I played in a, a band, a Matsu concert band, I played clarinet. And so the people in that band are um, a whole different cohort than I would be running into, it did run into, you know, with my friend group. Um, and talking with them definitely didn't change my reporting necessarily, but I think of them when I'm writing stories now, like, oh, well, maybe Lane Olson is reading this. And, you know, he talked to me about his his friends who have that red wagon that I still haven't written about, it's a giant red wagon. Um, and so I think that is different. And there is, 
there's a different, I mean, it's different politically in that zoo, right? Um, our voting blocks are different. Um, our, the personality up here is different. The, the way the place is structured is different. It's one big borough the size of West Virginia or Ireland, um, depending on and how you feel about that too, um, with you know three cities, two of them at all any any kind of size, a bunch of different communities. So it's really hard to put a bead on that Sioux in terms of who people are, but politically, um, definitely different from Anchorage, right? We vote different from Anchorage, and um, I mean we have I, I think people here support the paper um, to some extent, but it, it is a different it's a different um, mentality. If I'm interviewing people up here. Um, you know, I've been working at the paper long enough that some people recognize my name, but not that many. I mean, I'm, it's not like I'm a celebrity at all. Like people, even though I have a unique name, people often are like, how do you say that? What do you, what is that name? So it's not like I'm familiar to people up here. Um, I do think, I hope that because one reporter has been covering that Sue for years, people at least, you know, there's, there's an identity to that. Um, I haven't, I haven't gotten a lot of criticism from people about the paper specifically, but yeah, it's, it's definitely different up here um, in terms of how people perceive the paper. What's it like being a journalist right now? And do you feel like the community's views on journalism have changed in the last four years or so? I think it's, there's two sides of that. There's, I think there's a lot of people who really appreciate journalism, especially local journalism, which often gets conflated with like talking head cable TV news, which is not the same thing, really. Um, I think there's a lot of people who really appreciate it and see it as like more vital now than ever. Um, but I think there are really quite a lot of people who do view journalists as um, the enemy, to be honest. And sometimes we get emails <laughs> um, that, that, really reflect that that sentiment that we are you know it's our fault as the media that this pandemic has changed people's lives that we are um you know perpetuating this fearful um environment that's keeping people from getting back to their normal lives and that is a sentiment i think we see a lot um it's certainly i would say it has changed in the last four years. But at the same time, once you get down to it, like there's almost nobody when you actually call them up and nicely say, hi, I'm Michelle Terrio Boots with Anchorage Daily News. I'm calling you because of this. And I wanted to give you an, a, chan a chance to say whatever, you know, <laughs> and you ask them a question that they won't and kind of good faith engage with you, but it has to come down to that personal connection because a lot of people I think do hold, hold hold these kind of vague, broad beliefs that the media are all one block, right? Um, so that's where it's at. I mean, I was really saddened and disappointed to see in the uh, Capitol raid on January 6th, there was um, so much violence to media and people had written murder the media in, in um, scratched into the walls. And it's like, we're not the enemy, <laughs> we're not the enemy. What do you think, yeah, I think that that's certainly, um, boy, in the last four years, I think we have seen um, a combination of, of Facebook becoming the main news source for so many people, which is really dangerous. Um, and a president who uses social media as a platform for his views um, and doesn't believe in most of science. Um, 
and downplayed the the risk of of this virus um even when he got it um and i think that that combination has been different in the last 4 years um just because of of the it is so easy to get into that echo chamber effect um on social media um and on facebook and and just focusing i mean their algorithms are built around hearing from the same people right the people you tend to track with right they build that into the system and so you get into this funnel um where you're you're only hearing from the people who believe what you believe and um there are very very strong beliefs obviously on um on both sides but um but in terms of the people who really um who bought into i mean fake news didn't take off uh until our president came in and and started that phrase anyway um didn't take off um that concept has been around i was just watching a a documentary about a similar effect in the philippines that was happened before uh, president trump came into office so i think unfortunately that what we're seeing with um the perception of the news media um and it's it's painful i mean when i am on social media i see people that i know talking about the fake media and it's like they know me as a person and they know that i don't make stuff up and um you know it it's not it's not a, a a job that we get into for the glory um that's for sure and i don't see what motive we would have to be making stuff up um but to see to see that is it's really frustrating and and i do have to say michelle's right though when you know i when you see somebody on social media there there's some big um facebook groups um anti-maskers let's say um based in anchorage let's say and uh, there was one he was a businessman in anchorage who was avowedly against testing right like don't get tested don't don't play into that that crazy messaging that you have to get tested for covid if you have symptoms and i was like he is a businessman you know on a public page at least a public facing page and i um i called him and we had a kind of an interesting 10 minute conversation he was polite his views were way more nuanced than he was making clear on facebook he didn't want to be quoted he didn't want his business name and then when i saw him again on facebook he was right back at it you know same exact same views um and so that's that's frustrating cuz you know i think we all know that people are way more complicated than they are on facebook but you don't see that can you tell me what issues in alaska needed to be reported on more and maybe give some examples of stories that are difficult or impossible to tell right now wow well i mean i guess um the story that i'm trying to work on about um tribal health organizations distributing vaccine at a different pace from the state is um if you don't see it in the paper it's because it's just so sensitive and i don't want to feed into stereotypes and racism and i'm not sure that that's a story it's a story that will take some care but it's also one that needs to get out there i mean it's happening um it's real and there's a real reason that um tribal members are getting vaccine at a different pace you know stories like that that have um the potential for you know racial uh, any kind of um conflict at that level where people um either could be hurt or hurtful things um could be said i mean the the comment streams that we get on some of those stories is is no reason not to write a story but um it just makes you realize how mindful and we know this anyway how how mindful we have to be boy the stories that we should be writing um you know i guess part of the overarching um stress of covering covid for me anyway on my level um just in terms of that the breaking news the science and the policy end of it there's a combination of public health that the state covers you know 
public health and also policy and also elected officials and all those um, layers coming together. I'm not going to say this very well, but I am most of the time pretty sure that we're not getting the truth, the 100% truth on anything. <laughs> you know, even from officials who are working as hard as they can to be accurate and clear. On, and, I, and for the most part, I don't think anyone is hiding anything intentionally, certainly not lying. But they can only say so much, especially in the public health side. You know, if you're a state health official, your job depends on it, um, on, on being careful sometimes with what you say. So, um, I, you know, I'm not going to point to any specific stories um, that I think we should be doing. I think we're doing an incredible job um, with, with limited resources and, and difficult access. Um, I guess, you know, the one thing I would say is I would love to be telling more personal stories. And we have, you know, Michelle has done great work. I've done a few um, uh, just talking with people who have direct experience in any aspect with this virus and everything it involves. I'd love to be telling way more personal stories because I think those resonate with people in a way that nothing else does. The story that like wakes me up at 4 a.m. is that I haven't done and I can't figure out exactly how to do it is um, the consequences the pandemic has had for the criminal justice system, like a really solid telling of that, because it's so extraordinary that, you know, people's right to a speedy trial has just been overturned for months and months. And um, people, you know, people have been essentially warehoused, um, often pre-trial in these facilities where this disease is rampant. And there's just so many, it's just so amorphous though, you know? Um, I, I'm really struggling to narrow down, how do I write about this profound upheaval in the criminal justice system when it has so many different kind of, and I keep trying to find one person to tell that story through, you know, like use that, but each person I find, it's not quite right. It's not. So I'm, I'm working on that, but that's long overdue. I really need to um, write something good about that. And then also a like, why this happened story, you know, 40% of prisoners, um, have had COVID, um, like what, what went wrong? Like, you know, was there, what could that have been avoided? Could those massive outbreaks have been avoided? Could the DOC have done things differently? Um, and maybe the answer is no, you know, we know that COVID has been rampant in prisons all over the country, but it, that's worth a real close examination. Um, here to see if if it could have been managed differently here. And then there's also like a million of those personal stories. Like I would love to do like a wake up with like someone, you know, somebody making minimum wage as like a, like a care provider um, for who is dealing with this risky job, caring for people, trying to live their own life and like wake up, you know, go to their house early in the morning and follow them all day through a day, you know, or, or those kind of stories where you just embed yourself with somebody. Um, I love those stories and I love doing those stories. And I, there's a lot that would be um, really interesting to do. And also school, you know, I mean, going back to school, that's just a, actually, a story about a, like a senior in high school, like a really close, you know, what's it like to kind of lose your senior year to being remote schooled? I mean, one of you could write the, that or, you know, whatever year you are in school, one of you could maybe write a first person, something like that. I would love to hear more about that, the profound changes on the experience of being young in this time when everything is crazy. <laughs> so. 
that's one I'm interested in too. And, and super quickly, because I know we're running out of time. You know, one of the stories that we keep trying to do and, and haven't been able to is talk to the people who are anti-maskers, who think this virus is a hoax. Mm -hmm. all, you know, all of those people who, um, I would love to know more about where that's coming from and exactly how those beliefs are formed and then cemented that the way that they have been. But those people are hard to reach. So my last question for the both of you is, what do you think is currently the most important aspect of COVID that the community should pay attention to? I think just the public should be as informed as possible on, um, on vaccination, all aspects of vaccination. Um, how many people, one thing I'd really like to know is like, how much vaccine hesitancy is there in Alaska and what is the state's what is the plan to deal with that? Is there a plan? And um, is there more vaccine hesitancy in Alaska than other places? Um, I think that's all fascinating. I mean, I think the question that everybody wants to know the answer to that no one can answer is like, so when, what's life like now? <laughs> are we, when are we, are we, is this, is this going to wind down? And then what is our life going to be like? Are we going to be still wearing masks? Are we going to be going back to, um, in what ways, is life going to be different for a while? And how, how are we going to deal with that? Which I have no idea. <laughs> Any of that. It's entirely possible that normal is a whole different reality now. Um, yeah, I think that, um, I mean, Michelle, I think raised all the points that I would want to raise, you know, just in general, um, what Alaskans need to know, I think, is that a lot of us who don't fall into risk groups or senior groups aren't going to be able to get vaccines for several months at the earliest, probably. And so all the things that we've been doing that have come become the new normal, we need to keep doing, um, you know, masking, social distancing, just being careful about your bubbles and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, I think that the, um, there's a lot of vaccine hesitancy here and they're already seeing that. That's a great question in the, um, one of the healthcare worker segments that not the frontline hospital workers, but kind of down channel from there where, where a number of people are just don't, they feel like it's too soon and everything is, is too new. So I think the more information we can get and give on how um, safe or, you know, just, just the more information we can give people on vaccine and the risks that they face um, is, is really important right now. I know we talked about a lot of stuff um, in our conversation. Is there anything else that either of you would like to add? Just thank you. You are a great interviewer and you asked some really, really thought provoking questions. So this is fun. Yeah, definitely Quinn, you, you did a, a great job. Um, and I also would encourage you guys since you are, you know, I'm assuming uh, interested in journalism um, moving forward, please, please, please um, continue on, on that path if that's, if that's what you're thinking about. It's, it's so important right now, um, you know, given everything is happening in, in the capital as a reflection of way much deeper schisms in our country, um, people who can accurately provide facts um, and tell the truth about what's really happening on all kinds of different platforms. You guys are, you know, incredibly adept on many different platforms now. Um, I hope that you continue and, and good luck with everything that you're doing. Thank you for doing it. Awesome. Well, thank you guys so much. Thank you, everybody. Thanks. <laughs> That was ATME senior producer Quinn White speaking with Michelle Tirio-Boots and Zaz Hollander. You've been listening to Podcast in Place, Youth Stories from Quarantine from Alaska Teen Media Institute. Our show's theme music was composed by Devin Schreckengost with additional music by Kendrick Whiteman. Stay tuned for more stories from quarantined youth. You can find these stories at alaskateenmedia.org 
where we have included resources for youth during quarantine in partnership with the State of Alaska Division of Behavioral Health. Alaska Teen Media Institute is based in Anchorage, Alaska. We would like to acknowledge the Denina people whose land we work on. Many thanks to supporters of our podcast, including the Alaska Press Club, John O'Hara and James McCoy. The views expressed in this program do not necessarily represent the views of our sponsors. Thanks to our listeners who contribute to our programs and help us leverage additional funds and grants. If you'd like to support Youth Voices in Alaska and help keep our podcast going, you can support us through Patreon. Patreon is a membership platform that makes it easy for you to support creative endeavors like At Me. Just go to patreon.com slash Alaska Teen Media. You can also help us out by subscribing to, rating, or writing a review of our series on Apple Podcasts. Every little bit helps us get our stories out there. And don't forget to check out our website, alaskateenmedia.org. There you can learn about what our organization does, discover more youth-produced content, or find out how to get involved. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for all sorts of updates. For Alaska Teen Media Institute, I'm Danielle Duclos. Thanks for listening. Stay safe out there. We'll get through this together.